My question to you is, have you ever been publicly called out for something and made to feel uh, bad about that? Have you ever been told shame on you for something that you've done or said? Um, I don't know if that's been the case. I've talked about this in a sermon in the past, in the recent past, really, about what I would say is this cultural liturgy around public failure and public repentance and how one of the results of public failure is exile. Basically, the public figure apologizes, gives money to the thing that they wronged, and then they disappear uh, into obscurity. And so one of the results of being shamed, of doing something wrong, of failing, is that you kind of want to disappear. Even if you can't, you kind of want to. I mean, surely you've had that experience where you've just wanted to go away and just start over. Anybody? Yeah? Nobody? Okay. One honest person in the room. You know what I'm talking about? Like something went down, and uh, thank you. Something something went down, and your, your uh, contemplative uh, moments about that were simply, I just want to quit. I want to uh, find a new job. I want to move to a new town, a new city, a new country. Uh, I want to delete all my social accounts. I want to get a new name, and I just want to start over. I feel like we've all been there at some point in our lives. If you could go back and redo one, two, three pivotal bad decisions in your life, what would they be? Now, don't answer that out loud. Um, but I feel like we've all asked that question in some way. Like, it's a way of reflecting through the lens of regret. If I could just go back and do that over, I would totally do it. And that's where we find Moses in our story. When we enter our text today, we find Moses in such a place. Uh, the, the, The writer tells us that when we pick up this part of Moses' story, that he is a shepherd and he is working for his father-in-law and man with the best name in the Bible, Jethro. Anyone? (laughs) Who is a priest and also, I hear, an amazing flautist for uh, Jethro Tull. Okay. Um, But this is what he's doing with his life. And the question we ask as readers is like, Moses wasn't always a shepherd, so why is he a shepherd at this point? So just a brief catch-up background at this point in Moses' story. Moses was born um, a Hebrew child um, into a very tumultuous political climate in Egypt. And so some of the Hebrew people were living there at this time, and they were quite uh, prosperous They were well-liked, and yet at the beginning of Exodus, it says a new king was in Egypt, and he did not know who Joseph was, which is this connection to the 12 tribes of Israel. So it's a sense in which the writer is saying the new king either doesn't really actually know who Joseph was, or he doesn't care, or both. And what ensues is a slow but certain uh, oppression of these people who were living in Egypt at the time. And so Moses is born into that situation. And the reaction of the the king at that time was to have all of the boys of Hebrew children murdered. And so Moses is sort of already in danger. Uh, But he is adopted uh, into a family, an Egyptian family, and not only that, into the Pharaoh's family. 
And so he grows up as a Hebrew child in an Egyptian kind of royal household. This has led scholars to believe that perhaps Moses did know how to read and write because he grew up in such a household. He seems to have known about his heritage. He seems to have known that he was an Egyptian, although he has an Egyptian name. He seems to have known about that. We see this where um, in the story where he sees a, an Egyptian beating a Hebrew person and he kills uh, the Egyptian. I don't know if you know this story, but you just back up a chapter or so. And so Moses seems to have known about his own heritage and there's a sense in which he cares for them and he sees something going down that's wrong and he kills, he murders the Egyptian. So this is a turning point, this is a pivotal moment in uh, Moses' life. And his actions did not work very well. Uh, I love this part of the story in, in chapter 2. When he went out the next day, this is after he murdered the Egyptian, when he went out the next day, he saw two Hebrews fighting, and he said to the one who was in the wrong, why do you strike your fellow Hebrew? And he answered, who made you a ruler and judge over us? Do you mean to kill me as you killed the Egyptian? And then Moses was afraid and thought, surely the thing is known. I love that language, the thing is known. Surely they know about this. And so what Moses does is he runs away. He leaves this self-inflicted exile from his, uh, his wrongdoings, but also from his just life. He, is, he has left a life of privilege, a life of influence because of his failings. And his thought is, I will just go and die alone. And so for Moses, there's a sense that he feels too uh, far gone to continue. And so he leaves. And the best he can do, it seems, is he does get married. He has a family. But the best he can do is that he can care for his father-in-law's sheep in a place that the writer calls beyond the wilderness. So not just a little place in the country, but beyond the wilderness. And it's at this point in Moses's uh, life, in this life beyond the wilderness, that God reaches out, that God enters Moses's experience, his situation. God encounters Moses in the wilderness or beyond the wilderness and in the strangest of ways. I know you were listening to that story go, I know this story and it's so weird. The bush that doesn't burn up, reimagined, by the way, in the great movie um, uh, Three Amigos with the singing bush, by the way. <laughs> yes, did you, you knew I would come up with that, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, it's a very strange uh, scene, this bush that's on fire. It's one of the most well-known biblical scenes, but it's also very confusing. Like, what does it mean? What does this have to do with anything? And there's so much mystery around it, but also very little explanation. I love the way the Bible tells stories and doesn't, like, explain them. The bush is on fire. It doesn't burn up. And Moses is like, whoa, let's go check it out. Like, that's the end of the story. It doesn't even get into, like, the metaphysics and how fire is hollow. I didn't learn that until this week. Lindsay told me that. And, like, all these sorts of things. It doesn't get into that. It just simply says this is what's happening 
And the traditions around this story um, do point to something that I, that I want us to, to listen to, which is all the mystery and all the traditions around the bush and the fire and why it's not burning up, they all sort of end up pointing to the presence of God's grace and mercy. His presence is often depicted in the Bible with fire, the pillar of fire that guides the Israelites through the wilderness in the night, that God is pictured as this light. I mean, the story of the Bible begins this way. And there was light is the very first thing that we see, that the presence of God is an illuminating presence. We see this in the fire. By the 4th century, uh, Gregory of Nyssa Uh, in the fourth century, connected this story, the first to do so, connected this story to the story of Jesus. Uh, The icon that was developed around this particular story is, of course, of flames, but in the middle, we have Mary, the mother of Jesus, holding Jesus as a baby. And this became the New Testament connection to this story, just as God is calling Moses to rescue a people we see within it this sense of God's saving presence in Jesus. This icon hangs in the monastery at St. Catherine's in Mount Sinai, supposedly in this area. Old Testament scholar Ellen Davis says, the essence of the gospel, the good news of Jesus, is heard already from the burning bush that God has come down to holy ground to deliver us. And so we see lots of tradition around that this Fire is about the presence of God, but also about something to do with his deliverance, that there's a refinement happening, that something is changing, that fire is also a symbol of judgment. And this is where it gets interesting, because in this scene, it, the fire does not consume. Fire may be a symbol of judgment and discipline and Refinement, but it does not consume all of the bush or any of it. With its qualities of refinement and extreme power, fire can consume and overtake almost anything. And yet, what we see here is this miracle of the bush remaining uninjured, unburned. And so in the story, God's presence, and this is something to hear today, that God's presence is not a destructive force but a rather meek one, a power under great control, that God's presence is not destructive, but life-giving. Now for Moses, the thought, the idea, maybe even the prayer that God would just burn his life down may have been a very real one. Maybe some of you in the room have been in places where you have actually said in your mind or out loud, it would just be better if I just wasn't here. And so the thought... In Moses' head that God would just burn his life down would have been a natural one with all the failings and missteps. But instead, what ends up happening is that Moses is called back into the world of God's work among his people. Because, you know, the, it's not even a subtext. It is the main subject here is that God is wanting Moses to go back and to help free a people who are enslaved. This is the work of God, this abolition that God is wanting Moses to be a part of. And so let's just recap. Moses shot a man in Reno. 
he feels like maybe he can get away with it because nobody knows. And then his own people go, we saw what you did. It's viral. And he's like, oh. And so he leaves to what the writer calls is like beyond the wilderness. He does get married, so there's that. But he's watching sheep for his father-in-law, Jethro. And in his mind, he's like, this is just how it ends. This is my job. This is my life. This is my station. And then God enters that place in Moses' life and says, hey, I got something I want you to do. And I love that God never says, hey, have you thought about what you did? Have you made amends? Have you made it all right? Have you fixed your failures? Have you become a better person? Is this your best self? He doesn't, he just invites Moses in. Hey, it's almost like God is saying, hey, are you done? Because I have something I want you to do. And I think sometimes for us, for you and for me, we can end up in that place with God where we're like, he doesn't want to deal with me right now because I'm going through this thing. And sometimes, and it's not in an ungracious way, but I think sometimes God is like, hey, are you, are you done with that? Because I got something I want you to do. And it is, it's not even about you. I want you to join the work that I'm doing in the world. The power of God's presence and the power of God's grace over Moses in this story is quite remarkable. Moses is humbled. I mean, that's why he asks, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh? I don't know if you were laughing when Addie was reading, but I just love the back and forth. Suppose I do go, you know. What's your name? And God says, I am who I am, which feels like a dodge. But who am I that you would even ask me to do such a thing? You know, Lent is a season of, it's a wilderness season. It's intentionally that way. All of the readings, all of the prayers, all of the liturgy, it takes us into this place beyond the wilderness. It's a place to sit still in the reality of some of those darkest moments, not just in the life of Jesus or God's people, but in our own lives as well. It's a season of honesty. It's one of the things I love about the church is that is this the only community on the planet right now that carves out 40 days to say maybe we're the problem? It's a very honest season where the church practices this behavior of maybe there's something in me that's broken that's contributing to more brokenness in the world. It's an honest season, but it is a season of, it is built for exiles like you and me. It is a season built for exiles like you and me. It is a season for the sad, for those who are hurt, for those of you who are struggling. This is your season. Not because that's what God wants you to feel, but because it's in this season that we maybe hear God's voice saying to us, I want, I want you to be a part of what I'm doing in the world.
And if we listen closely, we can find God's grace. So I love this story of Moses, and I love that it's in the Lenten readings because it reminds us again that life has those times where we just want to disappear. And it's in those times where God speaks in very interesting ways, and his message is always the same. Hey, I want you to come close to me. Take off your sandals even, because we don't want them to get burned. But really what that is, is I want your whole self on my space. And I want to work with you and to shepherd you and to invite you into what I'm doing in the world. It's a season to hear that gracious message over and over and over again. While we are being honest about who we are, there's a relentless and persistent message of mercy that we keep getting. Amen. When my grandmother passed away, I got these old hymnals, and um, this is a um, shaped notes hymnal, which is really fascinating. And there's lots of great songs in here. Uh, By the way, a hymnal is a really good devotional book. Um, I mean, for the most part, some hymns are garbage, but... um, (laughs) But for the most part, uh, you can find some really incredible things in here. So I want to read to you some of this great song by Charles Wesley, Love Divine. Um, Love divine, all love excelling, joy in heaven to earth come down. Fix in us thy humble dwelling, all thy faithful mercies crown. Jesus, thou art all compassion, pure, unbounded love thou art. Visit us with thy salvation. Enter every trembling heart. Breathe, O breathe, thy loving spirit into every troubled breast. Let us all in thee inherit. Let us find that second rest. Take away our bent to sinning, Alpha and Omega be. End of faith as its beginning. Set our hearts at liberty. Come, Almighty, to deliver. Let us all thy life receive. Suddenly return and never, never more thy temples leave. Thee we would be always blessing, serve thee as thy hosts above. Pray and praise thee without ceasing glory in thy perfect love. And the final verse, finish then thy new creation. Pure and spotless let us be. Let us see thy great salvation perfectly restored in thee. Changed from glory into glory. Till in heaven we take our place, till we cast our crowns before thee, lost in wonder, love, and praise.